from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, April 26th. I'm Marco Werman. guilty verdict in the war crimes trial of Charles Taylor. The prosecutor says it's vindication. It's confirmation of what the people in Sierra Leone told us from the beginning of our investigations, and that is that Mr. Taylor was one of those who bore greatest responsibility for the crimes against them. And later, Norwegians sing a song that mass killer Anders Breivik slandered in court. We were singing it to ourselves to celebrate the kind of unity that Norwegians have felt ever since the 22nd of July. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street. Four years after the financial crisis exploded, are we safer? The investigation goes on in Washington, U.S. banks, and the looming troubles in Europe. Tuesday, May 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. All eyes were on a United Nations backcourt in The Hague today. That's where Judge Richard Lussick issued the verdict in the war crimes trial of former Liberian President Charles Taylor. It took more than three minutes to read. Here's just a quick sampling. The trial chamber unanimously finds you guilty of aiding and abetting the commission of the following crimes. Count one, acts of terrorism. Count two, murder. A crime against humanity. Count three, violence to life, health, and physical. Count four, rape. A crime against. Count five, sexual slavery. Taylor is the first former head of state convicted in a war crimes trial since the end of World War II. The former president of Liberia was found guilty of aiding, abetting, and planning crimes committed during the Civil War in neighboring Sierra Leone. But while the judges found Taylor criminally responsible for those war crimes, they didn't find him guilty of ordering them. Chief Prosecutor Brenda Hollis said the rejection of some of the charges against Taylor proves that international courts do uphold fair standards. Accused persons who come to these international courts will receive a fair trial and that the prosecution will be held very, very strongly to its burden to prove every element of its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And where the judges feel we have not proven our elements beyond a reasonable doubt, they will not make findings of guilt. Taylor's lead defense lawyer, Courtney Griffiths, had a different reaction, claiming the trial's outcome was preordained. We recognized it from a long time ago, supported by objective evidence. For example, the WikiLeaks cable from the U.S. ambassador in Monrovia to the State Department saying if Taylor was acquitted or didn't get a long sentence, he should be tried in the state so that they can keep him out of West Africa for a long time. Exactly how long Charles Taylor will be away from West Africa isn't known yet. His sentencing is scheduled for next month. Taylor has a long, complicated history in his home country and the surrounding region. The world's Jason Margolis has this profile. Charles Taylor was born in Liberia in 1948. 
In the 1970s, he earned a degree in economics from Bentley College, just outside of Boston. After that, Taylor returned to Liberia and received a government appointment after a military coup in 1980. A few years later, Taylor fled to the United States after he was accused of embezzling close to $1 million. He was arrested and imprisoned in Massachusetts. In 1985, Taylor tied bedsheets together and escaped from the second floor of a prison cell. Taylor claims that the CIA aided his escape. Taylor made his way to Libya, where he allegedly spent time training under Muammar Gaddafi. In 1989, Taylor led a rebel militia into Liberia to overthrow the government. A chaotic on-again, off-again civil war followed. It lasted 13 years. During the fighting, Taylor regularly called into the BBC. We will be sending a delegation on tomorrow. Do you have any hopes that uh, peace might be negotiated there? We are not there to negotiate anything. Uh, We were invited by Echo and we are there to listen to If they call for a ceasefire, will you abide by that? No, there will be no ceasefire, Robin. No ceasefire. Taylor was elected president of Liberia in 1997. To many there, he was a hero, especially in the eyes of some of the child soldiers who fought for him. Mali Gugu Zawu took up arms under Taylor when he was 15. I met Zawu two years ago in Liberia. Oh, my thought of him at that time was that he was such a wonderful and powerful man. Yeah, a man who was fearless. Taylor was known for handing out bags of money and keeping the price of rice cheap. But he also displayed cruelty and greed. He controlled Liberia's diamond-rich regions, rubber plantations, and iron ore deposits. Taylor supplied guns to rebels in neighboring Sierra Leone in exchange for so-called blood diamonds mined by slave labor. Many of the soldiers loyal to Taylor terrorized people in Liberia and Sierra Leone, explains Jennifer Cook, director of the Africa program with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Rape, killings and so forth, just the worst forms of brutality that warlords and the young men who who fought for them could think up. Rebels in Sierra Leone came up with new vocabulary for their atrocities. Applying a smile meant cutting off the upper and lower lips of a victim. They regularly hacked off arms of their victims. Brainwashed child soldiers were forced to kill parents and relatives. Cook says in the pantheon of bad guys, Taylor stands out. I'd say he's up there with some of the worst, not only because of kind of the brutality that he kind of wreaked on Liberians, but also because he was key in kind of fomenting a whole system of conflict within West Africa that was particularly brutal. Six years after becoming president of Liberia, Taylor was indicted for war crimes. Here's Taylor speaking shortly after the indictment in 2003. He called the charges vindictive and racist. I mean, some little American prosecutor wants to disgrace an African president. This whole thing of using some little fella to run around to disgrace African leaders and make a mess of us because we are supposed to be monkeys in the trees, I think is something that African leaders have to look at very seriously. It is not just about Charles Taylor. This is not about Charles Taylor. A few months later, under pressure from the Bush administration, Taylor left office and was provided safe haven in Nigeria. Three years later, Nigeria told him he had to go. Taylor fled and was soon captured trying to cross into Cameroon. When Taylor left Liberia in 2003, 
The Economist magazine named the country the worst place in the world. Today, eight years later, the country is the second poorest on the planet. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Charles Taylor continues to be a polarizing figure at home. While many there revile him, quite a few idolize their former president, and they had hoped for a not-guilty verdict today. Bonnie Allen reports from Monrovia. There were claps and cheers in downtown Monrovia early this morning, but they came long before the verdict. Liberians were happy to get a look at their former president when Charles Taylor's face first appeared on television in the courtroom. Charles Gonke Taylor will be free today, one man chanted. Many Liberians were hoping that Taylor would be declared not guilty, free to return home. I want for Taylor to be free because we the Liberians will love him, will love him a lot, will love Charles Taylor. While Taylor is widely viewed as a warlord and dictator outside of Liberia, here at home it's more complicated. Many still idolize Taylor as a charismatic freedom fighter who liberated Liberians from a tyrannical president in the 1990s. That's how Peter Toby feels, so he wrote this song in the days leading up to the verdict. Toby was the recipient of one of Taylor's acts of extravagant generosity. In 1995, when Taylor was still a rebel leader, he paid for Toby to get heart surgery outside of Liberia. He sent me to the hospital, nine hour, 45 minute surgery on my heart, 350,000 United States dollars. If a man does that for you, what do you say? Thank you. And say, God, thank you for this blessing. Toby, like many Liberians, believes Taylor is the victim of a Western conspiracy to put him in prison and exploit Liberia's rich resources. America and Canada, of course, British, you all the same. You want our oil. So you don't want a tough man here. You want, you want somebody, excuse me, that you can hold by nose. During Taylor's three-year trial in The Hague, people living in Liberia had little access to information. They didn't hear the evidence or listen to the witness testimony. That's evident two hours north of the capital in the village of Batala. This was once the training base for Taylor's most vicious fighters, the anti-terrorist unit. Today, women occupy the space, crushing rocks with small hammers to earn a few dollars a day. Musu Pepe is a mother of eight. She doesn't understand why the court found Taylor guilty. Sierra Leone war, we don't know anything about, she says. We only know about our own war. That's another painful issue here in Liberia and one of much debate today. Some resent that Taylor was tried for a war in another country when Liberia had its own devastating civil war, one that killed 250,000 people, five times as many as Sierra Leone's war. There have been no prosecutions here. In fact, many former warlords hold government jobs. Amos Darby, a government worker, wants Taylor to stay in prison, but for crimes he committed in Liberia. We would like to see Charles Taylor be tried for crime in Liberia, not the blood in Freetown. The government of Liberia has called for calm in the days ahead. One moment of quiet came mid-afternoon as eyes turned to the sky. A rainbow appeared, a rare event in Liberia. It circled the sun. According to Liberian folklore, it means that a great man has fallen. For The World, Bonnie Allen, Monrovia, Liberia.
And I woke up this morning, and I heard on the radio, they said, you know, the former warlord, Liberia president, Charles Taylor, has been convicted. And I thought, yay. And then they kept talking and said for what he did in Sierra Leone. And I immediately felt left out. I know that sounds kind of strange. New York Times correspondent Helene Cooper was born in Liberia. Her memoir of the Liberian coup of 1980 is called The House at Sugar Beach. She says today's verdict is very unsettling. I'm really happy to see that he has been found guilty of something, but as a Liberian, it's kind of hard for me not to have sort of a what about us feeling because he was found guilty of what he did in Sierra Leone for aiding and abetting, as you know, the civil war there. But he did so much more to Liberians. And so there's a big part that feels, you know, we would like our own turn. And I think, you know, when you look at kind of the psychological scars going on that are still on display in Liberia and these all of these former child soldiers who are struggling now to become functional people again, and all of these war orphans and the people in Liberia who've lost so much in part because of the wars that, you know, Mr. Taylor helped to propagate. The vast majority of Liberians are sort of happy that he's been found guilty, but sort of thinking that maybe justice wasn't done for us. Helene Cooper, a correspondent with The New York Times, she grew up in Liberia. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. You'd be hard-pressed to find a government that doesn't have its own website. I know, websites, the old stuff, right? Isn't everything mobile now? Not yet, at least not as far as government portals go. And some are much better than others, even if they're done on the cheap. From New York, here's The World's Alex Galifant. Michael Detana is a junior at Fordham University in New York. He's about to turn 21. He's studying computer science, although he takes courses on other things, too including a recent one on North Korea. And we were assigned a project to review some North Korean propaganda, pamphlets, magazines, and of course I got the one website in that, so I was happy. Immediately upon going onto their website right here, it looked familiar to me. I mean, this isn't a typical government website. It's very flashy. Um, It's a very polished website. I mean, compared to our U.S. government website, that's a mess. Okay, wow, North Korea's site is better than the U.S. government's. Launch a rocket to celebrate, Pyongyang. Well, just a sec. The site in question isn't strictly North Korea's official government site. Instead, it's one run by the North Korean Friendship Association, a group that operates with official support. The site's hosted on servers in Spain, and it's sort of sexy in a totalitarian kind of way, with a big banner that smoothly twists into a new image of North Korean glory every few seconds. I mean, they've got a flash banner right here. This banner in, on the main section is actually, um, it's, I believe this one's the Peacemaker flash banner. Any developer can go and add that to their own website. Did you, did you say Peacemaker? Peacemaker, that's the P-I-E-C-E. Um, it's just the title um, of the slider. I mean, you've, there's all sorts of names that developers give their designs. That Peacemaker banner, the big picture that changes every few seconds, that was the thing that caught Michael Detana's eye. It looked familiar. It looked like it was part of a template, an off-the-shelf web design that developers sometimes use to build their sites around. It's much cheaper than creating a new site from scratch. So the first thing I did was go to the source code, which I'll show you right now. 
you just right-click view source, and there you are. And Datana found clues in the source code, comments left by the author of the template, kind of like an instruction manual to developers. That's really not something typical that you would want left in a, a government website designed to show the world that you're the world's leading nuclear power, as they like to、um, describe themselves. <laughs> And indeed, it turns out that the North Korean Friendship Association website is built around a template designed by a guy in Southern California. It costs fifteen bucks. You can look at it and, with one second, tell that it's the same template. Michael Detana told Wired.com what he found, and it all became a bit of a joke. Kind of, you're rubbish at web design. No wonder you can't launch a satellite. But as many commenters pointed out, fifteen bucks sounds like a pretty good deal in our current age of austerity. Of course, the North Korean Friendship Association website doesn't really do very much. It's propaganda, pure and simple. But many government websites around the world promise much more than that. Availability of data, information on policies, what legislators are thinking about, what executives like the president are thinking about. This is Tom Erickson. He heads Acquia, a company that helps organizations use open source web design software. The code is free, so you spend your money on tailoring it to your needs. Ericsson says more than a hundred governments around the world now use open source software for their public websites. He mentions the French government site as a good example, and also Israel's. It is a, a move towards government, not necessarily of the people, but government by the people. A chance. You, I mean, do you really buy that? It's not. You don't think it's just a kind of a superficial attention to openness? I, actually, I do buy it because I see it. I, I see real examples of. Different countries around the world exposing things that they didn't use to expose, and for the things that they still don't, there's always WikiLeaks. The point is, for the most part, we can visit other countries' government websites. We can see for ourselves the things they're making available to their citizens. And if our country's not doing those things, we can kick up a fuss online and ask, why not? And I think that's where we have to hope that our governments are listening. But I, I like to think that. Governments who are enacting and creating these open online presences—they're doing that because they do care and because they do want to listen. And if they don't want to listen, at least we have a pretty website to enjoy. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. Norwegians took to their town squares today to take back a song. The song is the Norwegian version of a Pete Seeger tune, "My Rainbow Race." The song came up last week at the trial of Anders Bering Breivik. He's the man who confessed to a bombing and shooting rampage last year that killed 77 people. And Breivik said in court that the song "My Rainbow Race" had been used to brainwash Norway's youth into supporting immigration. Asa Businja Lederson was part of a crowd of an estimated 40,000 people who gathered in downtown Oslo today to sing "My Rainbow Race." Lederson is a member of Queendom, an all-black, all-female group in Norway that sings about, among other things, inclusiveness and diversity. And Asa, what was it like to be part of that crowd in Oslo today? I had a really good feeling because、um, this song kind of stems from, you know, the protest singers, the anti-war movement. From the 60s and 70s, and it was brought to Norway, translated to Norwegian, and became a really popular children's song. So I've noticed a lot of adult Norwegians were kind of ironic when we refer to this song. After Breivik mentioned this song in that context, people suddenly felt the need to take back the song, to say that yes. We do actually embrace this naive idea that people can actually live together 
they can love each other across color, creed, religion. And we just really stand up for those basic human values. So all these people going out to all these town squares in Norway today, it, was, it sounds like you're saying it was kind of a pushback against what Breivik said. It wasn't really about Breivik. I would say it was more about the core values that Norwegian society is built upon. Because I've noticed amongst the survivors of the 22nd of July last year, many of them have been asked, what do you think about Breivik? What do you think about what he said in court today? And many of them have said, I don't care about him. I just want to stand up for my society and for the Norway that I love. And I'm going to, you know, pick up the pieces of my life and move forward. And I think that's what Norway did today as well to celebrate the kind of unity that Norwegians have felt ever since the 22nd of July. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can share with us the chorus of uh, the song by Rainbow Ray, so, so we can maybe hear how the song addresses those Norwegian core values, as you say. In English, it goes like, One blue sky above us, one ocean lapping on our shores, one earth so green and round, who could ask for more? basically how we can all unite and just stand together for something positive. Your group, Queendom, is all about supporting diversity and broadening the notion of what it means to be Norwegian. How do you feel about how Norwegians generally have responded to last summer's tragedy? Um, Growing up in Norway as an African-Norwegian, there used to be times when I was subjected to a lot of racism and a lot of prejudice. I felt it was difficult for me to call myself Norwegian because I felt that Norway couldn't include me with everything that I am. And after the 22nd of July last year, I felt that it was a proof that a different Norway has been emerging over the last decade or two and that there is room for people like me as well. So I'm quite proud of Norway and I can stand up and say I'm a Norwegian the same way I can stand up and say I'm an African. And there is no inner conflict in me about that anymore. Asta Businja Lidersen is part of the Norwegian group Queendom. She was in downtown Oslo today, along with about 40,000 others, to sing My Rainbow Race. Asta, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the mystery behind a Vogue magazine profile, Syria's first lady, and a theory about Asma al-Assad's predicament. She joined essentially a mafia family, and now she can't get out. Whether she wants to be part of that mafia family uh, at this point is somewhat immaterial. She's part of it. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. You'd think the last thing the European Union needs is another summit. But EU President Hermann van Rompuy said today that he may call for an extra summit to tackle a dilemma any U.S. politician is familiar with. Are budget cuts enough to cure ailing economies, or must governments also spend to stimulate growth? So far, the EU has favored austerity measures primarily, but there's now a backlash in Europe against too much austerity, and the calls for growth are getting louder. 
The world's Europe correspondent, Jerry Haddon, is in Barcelona. And Jerry, what does this European backlash against austerity look like from where you are? Well, it seems to be occurring with more and more frequency and with more and more vehemence as well. I mean, here in Spain, we recently had a national strike amidst many other sorts of protests against austerity, which ended in violence, clashes with the police in the streets. In Prague last weekend, there was a, a huge protest, over 100,000 people. It was the biggest protest there uh, since the Velvet Revolution to end communism, again against austerity measures. Yesterday in Portugal, the sort of national day of celebration commemorating the 1974 beginning of democracy and the end of a dictatorship there, the military, for the first time ever, refused to participate in that celebration. They're the ones that ushered in democracy through a coup back in 74, and their reason for not participating, they're against these austerity measures as well that have got countries like Portugal caught in a vicious downward economic spiral. Wow. So it's kind of all over the place. I mean, politically, where could all this be headed? I mean, in places like Spain and Portugal? Well, that's the million dollar question. I mean, we are seeing political change now. Uh, we have been for the last year across the continent. And just within the last few days, we've seen the government in Netherlands essentially collapse over this very debate, more austerity or less. And uh, an extreme party that formed part of the ruling coalition said, you know, we can't take any more of this. Any more austerity is going to mean more job losses for us. They pulled out. The government collapsed. As you know, France is about to hold second rounds of a very important presidential election. And the candidate who seems poised to win is saying that he's um, completely against more austerity for France and wants to spend more. So on a political level, it, it seems that when elections do come around, the governments that have embraced austerity are getting punished. So who have been the main proponents of austerity in Europe and who's leading the pushback right now? It has been German Chancellor Angela Merkel. She, from the very beginning, has said the only way to avoid another Greek-style crisis in which the government got way too far over its head into debt is to have some fiscal discipline and have everyone agree to some certain standards. Uh, she has been closely joined by French President Nicolas Sarkozy. In fact, their union has been dubbed Mercozy over here because they've been on the same page now for over a year. But ironically, the person who seems poised most to push back, again, is Francois Hollande. He's the socialist candidate running for president in France. Polls show him winning, and he says if he does win, that Europe is going to change direction. He plans to spend about $30 billion more dollars rather than cutting back further. I mean, practically, if a country like Greece is suffering under austerity measures, where does it start a growth cycle? Well, nobody knows. I mean, first, Europe as a whole has to decide that growth is really a priority and not just give it lip service. So, you know, countries are kind of in this conundrum. They're trapped in this schizophrenic sandwich. On one hand, they've got Brussels, the EU, telling them cut spending, raise taxes, do whatever you have to do to reduce debt, and then grow. You've got to grow. And then you've got the bond markets that are essentially doing the same thing to them. They're looking at their debt and they're saying, that worries us. You need to pay us more on the loans we're going to give you. And then the second a government turns around and actually makes the cuts that might reduce that debt in theory, the markets get scared again. And they say, look at that, you're, you're going to stomp out growth by doing that. And then the interest rates continue to go up. So individual governments seem to be really trapped between a rock and a hard place. Jerry, uh, give us the micro shot here. How has austerity affected you and your neighborhood in Barcelona? Well, at the, at the school where our kids go, you know, classroom sizes are going to shoot up between 25 and 30 kids per class. 
That might not sound enormous, but uh, it's much bigger than the 15 or 20 kids per class we have now. Teachers are being asked also to work an extra hour a day. And, you know, in terms of healthcare, we've got friends who use the, exclusively the public healthcare system, which is world class. You know, generally when things are going well, it works great. And they're having to wait months and months to get routine exams done. We have a friend who's just flown to Paris, actually, out of desperation to have a certain kind of medical exam done because she just can't wait any longer here in Spain. Well, you can read more of Jerry's observations on European austerity and growth at theworld.org. The World's Europe correspondent Jerry Haddon joining us from Barcelona. Thanks. My pleasure. During the months of upheaval across the Middle East and North Africa, Morocco stayed relatively calm. Moroccans kept their popular king, and last fall they elected an Islamist government that promised an end to corruption and more economic development. The government also vowed that it wouldn't impose its religious ideals on a relatively secular society. But now Morocco's government is facing a test in the case of a teenage girl named Amina Filali. Her father says she committed suicide after being forced to marry her rapist. From Morocco, Mary Stuckey has a story. In Morocco, a man who has sex with an underage girl can escape prosecution by marrying her. Some judges even allow a man accused of raping a girl to go free if he marries her. Lassen Falali says that's what happened in the case of his 16-year-old daughter, Amina. The prosecutor offered marriage as a way to restore his daughter's honor. Falali says he went along with it, and so did his daughter's rapist. The only reason he married her is that the prosecutor told them, now just go get married. Falali says even he hoped the marriage would work out. But after the wedding, Falali says the abuse continued. He says his daughter's husband frequently beat her. On March 10th, Amina killed herself by swallowing rat poison. Falali says the husband made his daughter's life unbearable. I mean, someone who raped you and tortured you, she could not get used to being with him. The husband's family disputes Falali's version of what happened. But one thing is certain. Amina's suicide has caused a furor in Morocco. Human rights and women's rights activists are demanding quick reforms. They say Morocco's laws are outdated and barbaric. A room full of activists demanded legal reforms at a recent debate in Casablanca with Morocco's family minister, Basima Hakawi. Hakawi is the only woman in the new Islamist government. Hakawi told the crowd that she's always demanded harsher punishment for rapists, and she expressed confidence that the laws can be changed to satisfy everyone. But so far, nothing has happened. Stephanie Wilman Bordat says she's frustrated by all the promises. She's the Maghreb Regional Director for Global Rights, an NGO that advocates for women's rights in the region. The Moroccan government has actually been promising a comprehensive violence against women law in Morocco since 2006, and we still don't have a law on violence against women. The Minister of Justice, parallel to this, has been working on penal code reforms quite seriously and substantively for years now. That whole process up to that point, it stopped with the elections. The new Islamist government was elected last fall. At the time, its leaders said they would not impose their conservative religious beliefs on the general public. But new Justice Minister Mustafa Ramid has suggested that the public is more comfortable with a socially conservative approach. The 
Ramid said that most Moroccan families don't want to change existing laws. They want the option of allowing marriages to underage girls to protect family honor. But whether Moroccan society is ready for reform doesn't matter, says Khadija Riadi, the head of Morocco's Association for Human Rights. Laws help to change mentalities. We don't wait for mentalities to change on their own. We must do something to change the mentality. There have been some reforms. A revision to the Family Code in 2004 gave women more rights and protections, including raising the legal age for marriage from 15 to 18. The Islamic Party that's now leading Morocco's government fiercely opposed that change, and many conservative male judges have continued to allow underage marriages, like the one between 16-year-old Amina Falali and her alleged rapist. The fundamental problem, says Stephanie Wilman-Bordat, is that violence against women is not taken seriously in Morocco. She points to the country's domestic violence laws. The police are not authorized to go into a home or the scene of a domestic dispute unless there's imminent threat of death. In order to bring a criminal complaint for domestic violence, for assault and battery, you have to have a medical certificate of incapacity of 21 days or more, which is a very high threshold to, to, to meet. Now all eyes are on Morocco's new Islamist government to see what it'll do about laws affecting women, now that the case of Amina Falali has become an international cause celeb. For The World, I'm Mary Stuckey, Rabat, Morocco. Ida Alami contributed to that story. In Syria, one woman who is not a cause célèbre but more of a tainted celebrity is Asma al-Assad. She's the wife of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. She is glamorous, young, and very chic, the freshest and most magnetic of first ladies. So began a Vogue magazine profile of Asma al-Assad, which appeared in the magazine in March 2011. That was just before President Assad began a brutal crackdown on protests across Syria. The timing couldn't have been worse, but the article ran anyway. Now it stopped running, at Vogue's online edition anyway. Paul Fari of The Washington Post has written about the Vogue profile of Asma al-Assad that seems to have disappeared. Paul, what has Vogue or reporter Joan Juliet Buck said about the article and where it is? Well, first of all, uh, Vogue has said absolutely nothing about what has happened to the article. Uh, it simply disappeared. You can't find it on Vogue's website. It's just not available. Uh, someone uh, snatched it up in Syria and put it on a fan page for President Assad, and that's about the only freely available copy, not terribly widely available. As far as uh, Joan Buck, she more or less distances herself from it. She says she was horrified to be around the Assads, uh, even though she wrote this rather fawning profile a little over a year ago. Now, you call it a fawning profile. I mean, the article's called A Rose in the Desert. It offers really only one voice of skepticism about Syria's first lady and the, the first family. That's from the French ambassador to Syria. And obviously, the timing was pretty bad. But, you know, personally, I found it a great peek inside the inner workings of Syria's elite. Would you call this a puff piece? Yes, I would, because it uh, doesn't have the context necessary to understand exactly what's going on. There was no accounting of the repression that has gone on for decades. There was no sense of the brutality of this regime. So context is important, and context was entirely lacking. And so what's your theory on why Vogue pulled this article from their online edition? Just one thing, embarrassment. Uh, I think this uh, article came out at a time just before the crackdown began. It was uh, ridiculed uh, in a number of places, and I think Vogue basically felt this was just too much uh, for it to bear. 
you know, in the old days, it was hard to make uh, articles disappear. And of course, anyone who still has a paper copy of Vogue from last March still has the article. But can can Vogue making a move like this really now act as if they had nothing to do with this article? Well, they can insofar as their website. The problem is with the Internet, things never really truly die. Someone uh, is always going to snatch up a copy and archive it on their own site. And that's what you have in this case. Right. There is a copy uh, at some Syrian website, which we will link to at the world. Org. Uh, Vogue apparently had been bidding for some time to profile Mrs. Assad, but it's curious, too, that a PR firm working for the Syrian government also had a hand in, in the article. You know, the, the context for this was that the Syrian government was actually trying to put a good Western face on itself at a time when it wasn't violently repressing its opponents. The U.S. had just sent an ambassador back to Syria. There was a certain kind of thaw. And I think the Syrians saw getting Mrs. Assad in Vogue magazine as an opening to putting a new face on the regime. Now, Paul, some weeks ago, you'll recall there were leaked emails from Bashar al-Assad's inner circle, including his wife, in in which even in the midst of the Syrian government's bombing of cities like Homs, Asma al-Assad was apparently ordering Christian Laboutin shoes online. Joan Juliet Buck's article in Vogue, however, suggests so that Ms. Assad is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do you have a sense who the real Asma al-Assad is? I don't, but I have a theory. Uh, The theory I have is that she joined essentially a mafia family and now she can't get out. Whether she wants to be part of that mafia family uh, at this point is somewhat immaterial. She's part of it. You know, the mafia in this case is trying to kill all its opponents for its own survival. She's going along with the program. I'm not exactly sure how you get out of that mafia family, but that's the position she's in right now. Paul Fari of The Washington Post, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. You can find links to Joan Juliet Buck's Vogue profile of Asma al-Assad and to Paul Fari's Washington Post article about it at theworld.org. We're looking for what could be the newest set of international sister cities for our GeoQuiz today. Typically, sister cities reach out to their foreign counterparts as a way to promote cultural or commercial ties. Toledo, Ohio and Toledo, Spain got the ball rolling back in 1931. Ever since, cities have forged similar partnerships, Ames, Iowa and Koshu, Japan, for example, or Galveston, Texas and Cape Town, South Africa. The latest sister city relationship that's popped up is between a town in Oregon and a village in Scotland. It's not clear the two places have much in common. The Oregonian town has an elite training center for seeing eye dogs, while the Scottish town has especially scenic bogs. But they do share something that is, shall we say, nominally humdrum. So try to name these twin cities. Our answer's coming up in just a minute. This is PRI Public Radio International. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're looking for what could be one of the newest sets of sister cities for our GeoQuiz today. A town in Oregon and a village in Scotland are mulling over the idea of joining up. The world's David Lavallee explains. The list of sister cities in the world is a long one. According to Sister Cities International, more than 2,000 U.S. cities are partnered in more than 100 countries. Did you know Seattle's hooked up with Tashkent? Others are more obscure. Louisville, Kentucky has a sister city that's the capital of a northern region of Ghana. Go figure. Some cities even have multiple partners. Anyway, the latest matchup that's generating some buzz involves a town in Oregon and a village in Scotland. Boring. That's probably what you're thinking, right? Exactly. It's the interestingly named town of Boring in Oregon, paired up with a village in Scotland named Dull. I have lived in Dull for 10 years or uh, so. Emma Bertles is from Dull. She says a friend of hers who was bike touring in Oregon suggested the sister city idea to her in an email, and she picked up on the idea. I proposed it to the Dull Women's Book Club, which is uh, an active group in the community, and we all thought it was a fantastic idea. So um, here we are. And here's boring Oregon resident Jim Hart's reaction. Well, I think I like the idea because uh, life here is a little bit dull, and we need something to spice it up a little bit. So the plan is picking up momentum. But first, Jim Hart wants to set the record straight when it comes to the origin of the name of his Oregonian town. This area was formed uh, because a person named Boring, that's his last name, came here in 1856 and homesteaded. So I talked to one of the Borings who are still living here, Bob Boring. I asked him a couple of days ago, and he said his father told him Boring is not a condition. It's a name. Fair enough. As for Dull's story, Emma Bertle says there's a couple of theories. One is that the name comes from an old Scottish word for meadow. Dull may also refer to the leather straps used to carry a coffin, She says there's an old story about the dulls snapping during an apparently lengthy funeral procession to an island cemetery. His body was being taken to Holy Island, and the dolls, as they are called, the straps that hold a coffin up, broke here in Dull, and um, his bearers decided that was a a sign to bury him here, and I think probably they were a bit tired and didn't really want to walk all the way to Holy Island. Lazy might have been another option, but they went with dull. With a sister city partnership in the offing, Boring's Mr. Hart says he looks forward to hosting some Dull visitors. The 84 residents of Dull agree hospitality is surely part of the equation. We'd love to have some Boring visitors. We'd be most delighted to have you. One local did come up with an interesting idea for the exchange, saying we could probably send them some strawberries and they could send us some good scotch. That deal will be on the table in June when the dull and boring community planning organizations convene. For The World, I'm David Lavallee. Finally today, we're going to hear music from a band called E La Bamba. They're based in Portland, Oregon, but there's a distinct Mexican flavor to their album Court the Storm. Here's one of the tracks, Bendito. Luz Elena Mendoza fronts the band Ila Bamba. And Luz, it's so cliche to ask how a band got its name, but I happen to know you've got a pretty good story behind Ila Bamba. So let's start there. Who is Bamba and why is Bamba important to you? <laughs> I like the chuckle after that. Um, Bamba, well, as we all know, is a song. Um, Bamba means boastful dance. You know, para bailar la Bamba. Mm. 
Then I got a cat and uh, just named her Bamba. Super sweet story, I know. But um, that's pretty much how the band got the name. It's a nice, sweet, innocent tale from everyone's favorite capital of innocence and sweetness, Portland, Oregon. Um, your, chi- <laughs> your childhood, though, was cast in a place kind of quite different. Uh, summers in the San Joaquin Valley in California among Mexican immigrants who were working the fields and orchards. How'd you get there? Tell me about growing up. Well, I was born in San Francisco, California. Both of my parents are from Michoacan, Mexico, and a lot of my family, they all either live in Mexico or um, they live in that area, like Merced, Atwater. We spent a lot of summers with a lot of pachangas, a lot of Mm. uh, attending to church and singing all like the traditional Mexican Catholic hymns and a lot of good food, a lot of great music. I don't think nobody really understands like living in two worlds simultaneously, like with being in America and then having parents from Mexico and then knowing two languages and then just having like this. It's just divided, but it's like all one, like my heart split in two. It's really interesting. Yeah, I can imagine what that was like, but I think perhaps your music uh, speaks to that kind of split heart uh, even better. So let's have a listen to one of the tracks from Ila Bamba's new recording, Court the Storm. This is a song where I feel your voice really pops. It's called Michoacan. So, Luz, as you said, your father and mother hail from Michoacan. What is this song Michoacan about? Well, Michoacan, I mean, when I wrote it, it's just not like I'm talking about one thing. I am talking about Michoacan, and then I talk about people in the church. Like, they go there and they, like like to, you know, praise God, but also there's a lot of gossip. And I talk about, um, you know, brujeria too, you know, there's also that, like people like putting spells on each other, just weird stuff, stuff that I remember, like stories that were told to me, like growing up and stuff. And I'm trying to be really lighthearted by like singing that. There are other songs on this album in English. Most of them are in English. Uh, the, the sounds can be uh, very Mexican one moment, and then you know you've, your your voice turns into this kind of psychedelic sound, almost like Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane. Do you have a stock way of describing your music? I don't know how to describe the music. It's kind of the same thing if I don't know how to describe like what my relationship with God or any of that. I think that it's something that's beyond me. I don't know. I think that expression so is like personal, you know, and it's hard to kind of like give a description or um, a label. Maybe we should just let the music speak for itself. I think so. Okay. So, Luz, I'm going to let you go, but let's go out with uh, the title track from the just released CD by your group, Ila Bamba. This is Court the Storm, and you are Luz Elena Mendoza with Ila Bamba. Great to meet you, Luz. Yeah, likewise. Her love tells her be courageous. Those eyes to wander, but baby, don't leave me with a heartbreak.
You can hear more songs from Court the Storm by Ilabamba. They're streaming at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.